Welcome to the Culture Chameleon Podcast. My name is Eugene, and I'm here with my co-host, Lucas. And we are here to talk about their cultural experiences, mental health topics, and theological and philosophical topics as well. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, Eugene, we have... So for all of you who are tuning in again, Eugene and I have been out for some time, actually. Um, the last couple of, of podcast episodes that you have listened to have all been ones that we've kind of had stored away and that we've worked on. So this is like our first time coming back. How you doing? I'm good. I feel like I'm tapping into my different culture experiences. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got you to have, travel to Canada. You got to travel. <laughs> got to travel to Canada and visit some friends and family. Yeah. What and part of Canada did you go to? Toronto. Okay. Yeah. So I ate a lot of good food. It's a lot of great people. Yeah. It's definitely, a, it felt like a different culture experience. Well, compared anyway, to Virginia, I yeah. imagine it was. Yeah. Definitely very different. Yeah. But it was fun. What were some of the cultural experiences you got to have that were different from your Virginian ones? I think the food and of course my friends, <laughs> but like, obviously my friends aren't here and hanging out with them. They're not Virginian. True. Yes. Yeah. And ethnically, a lot of them are from, uh, say, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. ethnically speaking. But a lot of them grew up in Toronto and grew up there most of their life. Yeah. So very, was, very much Canadian. That was interesting how you, you mentioned that there were pretty big Asian population um, in Toronto and how a lot of the Asian population kind of gathered together in, in neighborhoods and, and communities like that. Yeah, definitely. Especially in Markham, it's kind of where my, I was staying with my brother. So that's where we were most of the time. And I remember looking around and thinking, man, a lot of people here look Asian. I look like you. I look like the majority. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I fit in. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like when I'm in Virginia, I look more like the minority, but yeah, it's not too big of a deal. Right now. Yeah. That's, re- I, that's one of the things I really liked about Canada when I went there. But I went to Vancouver, not Toronto. And you're listening there's a lot of thunder and lightning going on outside so i wonder if that's going to get picked up the microphone (laughs) (laughs) be a fun little time with the editing yeah yeah it'll be fun it'll be good it's it's all a wonderful learning process um yeah but we we digress a little bit going so we're coming back um eugene and i have thought about what type of topics and questions or or interest we want to talk about um, as we kind of go forward in the in the next couple episodes because this will be episode eleven when it comes out, which is awesome. We've done ten, done a good job, I think, for starting out new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully our audience thinks the same. We hope, and right? yeah, we're always welcome to new ideas and suggestions, and we're always happy to bring anyone that wants to be on the podcast on and just explore more of your life and experiences. I think by now the 10th podcast, we've been able to discuss more about different topics that we've been interested and considering. Yeah. Our thoughts about some of the needs in the population. um, I think some things that have come up our identity and how that plays a huge role in navigating these different life experiences. Mm-hmm. So some things that we've talked about um, more recently and discussing what to talk to you guys about have been relating to identity. And 
I think we basically covered like a broad range of topics before this podcast. We covered a, whenever I look back at the episode titles, um, we did cover a lot of different topics. Um, and I think we could always go back and cover a lot more topics too, you know, like recover them, um, have new perspectives, things like that. So I'm excited to go back to a few of them and kind of dissect them again. Yeah. Just go ahead in more depth and exactly. flesh out some of the ideas more thoroughly. Yeah. But I think one of the things, because in the, um, in the one where we talked about strengths and weaknesses, one of them, one of the um, identifying factors that we talked about was identity formation and how that's a pretty big part of a, anybody who's ex- have, who has led a, a third cultural life um, will understand to a degree what that identity formation or that, what that will look like and maybe the difficulties that come with that. So in this episode, we definitely wanted to cover that a little bit more in depth and maybe from a different angle. Um, I mean, there are a lot of angles that we can take for this, but one of them is going to be from uh, a specific theory called God attachment theory. Um, And we want to include this, and Eugene can correct me too. Um, We want to include this one, because it kind of comes from a Judeo-Christian perspective um, and research-based for this attachment theory. Um, and we can get a little bit more into what attachment theory is for those who don't know what that is exactly. Um, and basically kind of have a pretty good discussion about what identity looks like through the God attachment theory um, and the just attachment theories overall. So. Um, Eugene, you want to start us off with what God attachment theory is? Yeah, you have, you have more of a personal stake in this one than I do. So I'm pretty interested in hearing your thoughts too. <laughs> personal stake? <laughs> personal stake is maybe not the right word, but like, uh. That's interesting way to put personal it. Personal interest. <laughs> I do. That's I a do better. Have, I do have a very personal interest. I think it was very, it was very eye-opening to see the research on this. And I think prior to stumbling on it. I didn't really think much of a psychoanalytic objects relations approach to uh, psychoanalysis as well as attachment theory. And to add on one other reason why we want to, what we're trying to accomplish, I think with this podcast also is to provide like tools and hope in ways to manage life and like understand God and who you are mm-hmm. and what your relationship to God is like. Yeah. and. God attachment is very interesting in my opinion because there's a lot of research behind it and there's definitely a lot of good articles published. So basically in essence, um, God attachment is measured by a questionnaire and what it's trying to find out is whether or not you have an anxious and or a secure attachment towards God. And what this might look like is usually broken down into two categories, which is anxious and avoidant so to put it um briefly whether or not you feel a lot of anxiety towards god or when you're not or when you feel disconnected from god and whether or not you are very you have a lot of avoidant behaviors and beliefs about god meaning that you don't really seek him for comfort or a source of um, security and 
one reason why I find this interesting is because I think, as Lucas mentioned, there's a lot of insight with regards to how one relates um, with their Judeo-Christian beliefs in a way that's more than just conceptual. It's also affective, meaning like how do we experience this emotionally? Mm-hmm. Like, and whether or not, one thing I find interesting about the research is that it can help with psychological distress when we're securely attached. And it can also help with theological exploration and understanding different dimensions of um, theological beliefs that I think often Christians run into, especially as they learn more about um, what it means to be a Christian, such as things like free will and determinism. Mm -hmm. Different people have different Calvinistic leaning beliefs about like their salvation and whatnot. So um, that's one thing I find, have found very interesting um, with a lot of the research with secure God attachment and to set up, um, I guess what we are looking to talk about throughout the podcast. Also how it relates to God image and God image being, again, more than just a con- what we, how we conceptualize God in terms of um, propositional beliefs, but also the images that are conjured up when we think of him, such as like whether or not it's a loving father or and caring father, or if it's just wrathful images of justice and something to be anxious about. So that's like a little brief about, I guess, what we're looking to explore with the podcast and why um, um, attachment to God is so interesting to us. Mm -hmm. And also how it can help um, those who are experiencing psychological distress as well, whether it's with their own theological beliefs or maybe questions, um, as well as I would I would also add in there as maybe um, their experiences with the world and their theological beliefs as well, and how they can kind of um, kind of run against each other in a, in a sense of like trying to figure out um, how does my theological understanding and belief about God help me in these real world experiences where not everything is so cookie cutter. Um, a lot of things are complex and nuanced. Um, but I think a lot of people hold to religious and, and spiritual beliefs to help them navigate life as well, uh, but also to find meaning and purpose. And in the context of, we'll just say for a Judeo-Christian perspective, from my perspective as well, to have a, a relationship with um, a God who is caring and loving um, to those who need it. For me, I definitely need it. um so that kind of gets into a little bit of some of the basics of god attachment theory what i wanted to to add in there for those of you who maybe are not familiar with attachment theory listening to this um interestingly enough uh when i was at liberty university for my undergrad years uh everybody had to take a general education class um, called Psych 150, which was basically a relational class, um, which was interesting because everybody everybody had to take that class. And um, it was basically 
an entire class devoted to attachment theory. And so everybody in that class had to learn about the four different attachments, which was secure attachment, um, anxious attachment, avoidant attachment. And I believe the last one um, is disorganized or. Yeah. So John Bowlby is like considered the father of attachment. So he mm-hmm. started out with the first three. And then Mary Ainsworth Mary Ainsworth. adds on the fourth one, which yeah. is disorganized. Yeah. So the beauty about uh, attachment theory is that um, we can look at it from our relationships growing up with our parents. And that's kind of what it's looking at. So when we think about attachment theory, part of that attachment is that we can look to our parental figures. We'll say parental figures. It could be other figures as well, like maybe a grandmother or grandfather or aunt, yeah. uncle, whoever. Early caregivers. Early caregivers yeah. is a better word, yeah. Our early caregivers as one, as as safe, so that we can go to them when we need protection, um, when we need comfort, when our needs need to be met at an early on age. And then the other one is security and being able to explore. So because we have that foundation of that early caregiver that is secure, we can then go explore the world um, and all that it has to offer. But knowing if there's something that is terrifying or scary or hurtful or, or whatever, we can go back to that foundation, that secure attachment, be recomforted or be re-encouraged and then go back out again. And so that is kind of like a very basic, basic premise of attachment theory of, of what, how we can look at it. And so based off of that, we can then see like, well, secure attachment is positive. It's like the, the healthy attachment that people want to strive for. Uh, in essence, it means you had, well, I don't want to say as a blanket statement, but like you had early caregivers who were secure and safe and they provided that environment for you. Anxious attachment is kind of like where we're going into people like Eugene said, who maybe are anxious or uh, dependent on other people's love and are searching for that in a sense of needing to find that security in other people, which is one, I would say it's good to find security in other people, but there are also instances where we can see that and say that's not a healthy searching behavior because there are people out there who can also take that and hurt. Um, and it's also kind of pointing to a, uh, what's the right word? Not a lack of self, but kind of like a, um, not a, a secure sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. That's an insecure sense of self. Mm -hmm. And this can also look like clinginess or even being anxious around the caregivers, Mm -hmm. like not being able to explore and being able to detach from the caregivers. Yeah. Without, without experiencing that anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then avoidant also, like Eugene pointed out, is like a, um, I guess in some ways it looks really good because an avoidant attachment kind of looks like being independent, like strongly independent, um, being able to take care for yourself. But it's also more of a, like a defense as well. It's like, uh, I put up the walls and I'm defensive about making attachments or relationships with other people because I cannot trust you to be there for me, to be secure for me. So I'm going to do everything by myself. That's 
like a very basic example. And so, and disorganized, uh, Eugene, I think you know that one better. Yeah. And disorganized can look like the child or infant or, or whoever may be experiencing uncertainty with the caregiver. So this might look like, um, having a strong attachment with someone who's abuse, like an abusive parent. Mm -hmm. So the child has learned to have like a fearful attachment to see comfort in having that fearful attachment where there's, it's unpredictable. The relationship is very much like unpredictable. Yeah. Basically that's what disorganized kind of looks like. Yeah. You're getting a whole bunch of things going on there. And one reason why it's unhealthy is because it's very guarded there's this searching for intimacy, but not knowing how to have it. So the way it might manifest itself in the future might look like, um, quote unquote, fears of abandonment and cutting off relationships early mm-hmm. and whatnot and being impulsive because of the learned behavior from the parents that are, that might be toxic or abusive. Yeah. And I think one, one reason why we want to explore this is because the data shows when we have these kind of insecure attachments earlier on with the, with what, whoever caregiver we're um, experiencing care nurturing from, it's easy to then have that attachment in relationship when learning about God and trying to develop um, that relationship with him. So for example, um, like some questions that come up might be, Like, where is God when I feel alone? And then not feeling as though God can be there to comfort them, not being confident in his love, or whether or not God is standoffish. And then this might look like experiencing this kind of anxiety or avoidant, say, like shame when someone sins or whatnot. It's this learned behavior. If I do wrong, then the caregiver may not be there to continuous love me. In essence, there's no deep security that that love will be there and it's eternal. Um, and while this may be the case, we don't want this to be some deterministic um, dark hole that we fall into because there's hope. And that's what we want to talk about. It's like one way to think about rectifying this kind of attachment is in large like re-experiencing it through your relationship with god and also from a psychometric point of view looking at how your god image can be changed as well so it's looking at how maybe this has a lot to do with who i think god is and whether or not i think see him conceive him as a loving father who can also love me even in my imperfections and mistakes Or if I just conceive of him as like a strictly domineering, wrathful and angry God who is there only to punish me and. um, Maybe like doesn't really care about me except for the commands or rules that follow. And that, yes. And that's part of the attachment to God inventory. One of the questions is, when I obey God's rules, God makes good things happen for me. So it's almost like a contractual exchange versus like what a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And like covenant love, which is, it's not a transaction. It's not how many good things do I do for God? It's not a 
a contract relationship where it's based on how many good things I do for God and whether or not I can uphold this. Mm-hmm. It's like a gift of grace that he gives to us. And in essence, having that relationship with him in a secure manner and understanding that love, which is beyond um, just obey, like obeying rules. And the reason why this comes up is because I think through my conversation with a lot of people, like sometimes religion is viewed as essentially a rule book for morality and ethics and ethics and how to just follow these rules dryly. And then it's almost looking like we're becoming Pharisees in which we're trying to delineate um, how far we can get away with certain with certain, certain things, activities yeah. <laughs> and like whether or not we're sinning or not that that seems to be the focus mm-hmm. as opposed to really learning to abide in that love and understand a lot of images that are god that might sound paradoxical but really are congruent and provide us a full image of what love grace and sin and imperfection look like mm-hmm. and in totality it's in my opinion a very beautiful thing the trouble is sometimes really understanding that and like having that deep relationship with what I'd say is a more accurate God image in order to proliferate more secure attachment to him. And this is where identity plays in. But Lucas, you mentioned (laughs) (laughs) one thing I wanted to throw in was uh, Lucas. We we were talking about Fowler stages of development. And to preface, it's only one, it's only one metric that has been used to kind of look at I look guess, at frame. stages of faith. Yeah, exactly. Frame and look at stages of faith. Yeah, doesn't have to be absolute, but I thought there are some interesting things with regards to the stages. Yeah. So, for I don't know too much about him to be honest. I just know that he taught as a professor at a theological seminary and else as well um i dr james fowler kind of coined um stages of faith uh, which is kind of similar to the stages of development that we've talked about in other podcasts with eric erickson and so we can kind of take eric erickson's stages of development and apply those same concepts to the stages of faith by dr fowler and so there are seven stages uh, and they are as followed, and some of them will make no sense to you, but I'll give a little brief synopsis of each one. Um, but this first stage is primal, undifferentiated faith, which is like from birth to two. Um, that first stage is basically like your, it's your early infant stage. So all experiences are acquired through the environment. Um, and there is literature that points to that uh, infant's kind of already begin to build that sense of, is this a secure, trustful environment or should I be mistrustful? And is this not a safe environment for me based on the experiences um, that they have around them? Um, And so that's like the first stage. And you can basically say that if there is um, security, then that can also be applied to a um, divineness. I don't know that word is kind of like there's a, a universal good or there can be something out there that is um, universally good. We'll just say that for instance. Um, the second stage is 
um, initiative or no intuitive projective faith, which is from ages three to seven. So this is at that stage where kids are learning to work with symbols and express thought through symbols. So a lot of this again is that faith is being influenced by stories and an intuitiveness for uh, maybe right and wrong uh, based on experiences and also being influenced by others. So you kind of have like that social learning of like, well, this is what my parents do. We go to church, we go to Sunday school. These are the stories that I learn. These are the shows that I watch. These are the books that I read. And maybe all has like symbolic, you know, religious, spiritual imagery. And so that is that other stage. Um, the third stage is mythic literal faith, which is like from seven to 12. And this is when you have, you start to develop that belief in justice and fairness, kind of like absolutes, like there has to be a good and there has to be a bad and there has to be a right and a wrong. Um, and so you develop some justice and fairness ideas. Um, and you also develop this sense of reciprocity, like you said, of like, well, if I do this, then I will get this. Like if I'm good, then I will get that toy for Christmas. Um, and I will pray about it. <laughs> um, and so then we move into like uh, synthetic conventional faith, which is from adolescence to early adulthood. And this is where we kind of get into adolescents and early adults are taking their maybe institutional religious beliefs, personal beliefs, um, religious and spiritual ideas, and they're now starting to make it their own. And we see that in Eric Erickson's stage when adolescents and early adults start to like separate from parents, start to develop their own identity and ideas. And that's a good thing because it kind of goes into at some point, there has to be a personal identification of religious and spiritual faith, ideas and beliefs which goes into the next stage, which is individuative, reflective faith. And that's like mid-20s to late 30s. And at this time, you've basically, you have a sense of personal identity in this. So it's, you've kind of adopted it yours, as yours now. Um, so you're taking responsibility for those beliefs, which is, we'll say it's a good thing. Um, but you're also experiencing the complexity and the nuances based on day-to-day -day life as it conflicts maybe with some of the religious and spiritual beliefs. And so that is something that is happening now, but it also allows for maybe a potential open-mindedness. So it also allows people to explore maybe other religions or maybe other avenues of spirituality at this time. Um, and then you go into the last two stages, and that will be conjunctive faith. And this is like your midlife crisis. So this is when you start to acknowledge that there are paradoxes. Um, and you start to contend with like the mysteries of transcendent God or a God of mysteries in a sense. And so at this point, some people leave maybe their initial faith um, because a lot of things come into more conflict. Um, but it also allows for people who maybe to leave to then find it again in a new way, in a new light. Um, so maybe that's through soul searching or whatever that might look like. And then the fat, the final one is a universal, universalizing faith, 
which is akin to enlightenment. So this final stage is you are walking um, the talk of based on your beliefs. You have a more empathetic understanding of people, even if they don't agree with your personal beliefs. There's a, um, a perspective of all people are worthy of something, of love, of grace, of whatever. And so now you're kind of living out that life that you were once reading about or talking about. The thing about that last stage is that not everybody is going to reach it. That's kind of something that he talks about a little bit. Um, some people might, other people won't. And so those are your seven stages of faith by Dr. Fowler. And what are some of your thoughts? And we do want to throw this out there to also explore the thoughts of our audience. And if you guys have opinions, please feel free to email us or contact us. We'd love to know. This is just, my thought is, this is one framework and reference, and one framework to reference spiritual growth and development. And to think about, I think what it sheds light on that I find interesting is the potential struggles that come up mm -hmm. with, and yeah. this, and from the research, was this strictly with a Judeo-Christian spiritual belief system okay I don't and think it seems so. to me something like um, broader that can yeah. be understood from like yeah i think it was encompassing a lot of maybe just faith-based yeah. development of whatever faith that you might have because yeah yeah and what i find interesting <laughs> i think what you said about the paradoxes i find very interesting because that's that's a genuine struggle i think with a lot of christian judeo-christian believers is how do I, how do I reconcile beliefs such as God being sovereign and myself having free will? It's true. Like that, yeah. There's lots of debates on determinism and free will. Very philosophical. Yeah. Or God being, you know, an absolute good um, and having an evil exactly. in the world. Uh, which would also be a, kind of like a paradoxical clash of experiences. Um, I think there are a lot of things that came that stuck out to me. Some of them kind of point back to the attachments that we talked about, like having, um, oh, it's skipping my mind right now. Um, because like having a secure attachment starts out really young, like that's when. That's when attachment starts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, you kind of have to look all the way back there. Uh, and I like how that ties into the same thing with some of the, the early phase stage, which is, is the environment safe? Um, can I trust the environment um, or is it not safe? And therefore, there probably is nothing good out there, you know? And that's it. I think very interesting starting point because a lot of the research with um, God attachment shows that when we have that secure foundational base, theological exploration is better accompanied because we're able to work from the core understanding of certain beliefs and principles, yet examine mm -hmm. um, these theological beliefs and not veer from the core principles. So the foundation is there and it's not completely shaken. And then we're able to do that with security um, and understanding of core beliefs of who God is. 
So that's why I find it interesting. Like, I think depending on how we have that relationship with God can actually affect how we understand these different paradoxes. And I would, yeah, I'd actually like to argue and say, I think a lot of times when we explore these concepts and we're open to them, you actually find that a lot of them are necessary contradictions. On the outside, they sound a lot like contradictions, but I think we talked, I don't know if we talked about it on the other podcast, but we definitely talked, we've talked about dialectical thinking before. Yeah. We've mentioned it. And how yeah, this so. correlates with false dichotomies. And I think a lot of times, and sometimes I think it's undervalued, a lot of times we miss out on the innate qualities of seeking veracity in our thoughts and how that can alleviate um, psychological distress, which is what we largely do with um, practices like CBT and REBT, or I guess CBT. Mm -hmm. Well, for those who don't know what that is, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy and RABT is rational emotive yep. behavioral therapy. Um, but look those <laughs> up if you don't know what those yes. are. <laughs> they're, they're different um, theories and applications of those theories in counseling practices with, with clients. And, and with all this, we encourage everyone to think about the, um, think about these ideas for themselves and with God for those that are Christian. So that you can discern what is true. Don't just take our word for it. <laughs> true <laughs> and, that. <laughs> but what I, what I want to do point out is sometimes I think, so for example, with these ideas, can God be all good, lovable, yet just, and punish those who are sinful, accept his children and reject sinners, essentially, for those that don't mm -hmm. want to be grafted into his family and the idea of yeah. allowing suffering to be prevalent in the world. A lot of these things. Right. Yeah. Can I put another one too? I think is um, also that idea of um, forgiveness yep. and grace for those who have done truly yep. awful things. It's that's like the opposite of the other paradox of like, there's suffering and evil in a good world um, or with people who are good people. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's like also the other paradox of like, oh, these things that? on the surface might sound like total contradictions. And I, I know I've wrestled with it before. That was a big deterrent that precluded my ability to really, really seek God out and have a positive God image. At what stage did you start having that? Well, you tell me, I don't know, maybe I'm assuming. At what stage did you have that secure or come into maybe like a more secure attachment of God? Or are you still working? I think that's that? something that's come through time within the last few years. And really getting to know, I think for one, walking with him and seeing and developing that security because you're experiencing that but also rectifying some of these irrational beliefs that I had. So I'll start with that, which is why I wanted to bring up the false dichotomies. I think a lot of these, like, okay, yeah. so I'd say within the last few years, also because I have a strong, like I did my undergraduate in philosophy and it was interesting to learn about analytical philosophy for those that aren't aware. 
just like me. Where, like <laughs> doing that has a lot to do with um, symbolic logic. It's almost like math with word problems. So, like a matrix. I like kind a of, matrix. but but with like propositional statements. So essentially, it's like okay. a simple version, which I think is called modus ponens. I forget the exact name. Is uh, you've probably heard this before. It's if p then q, p therefore q. Yeah. So that's a simple example. Of yes. That. Um, but we also go through a lot different logical fallacies. And one of them is what we call a false dichotomy in which case you say A or B and only A or B, which means you are essentially limiting um, the interlocutor that you're arguing with to two options. So it's almost like saying like either God is good and just or he's um and he can't and he can't have like evil in the world. So it's either God is good and just or there is no God and there's evil in the world. That Okay. And you're saying those are false dichotomies, which is like a logical fallacy because you're arguing you're arguing from two absolutes and therefore there's nothing else to work with. Is that what the yeah, idea is? Yeah, and what I think is also like they're not logical contradictions so i think it's a false dichotomy because um to say some or to say something along the lines of god is sovereign and at free will like one option might be god is sovereign and at free will or god is not sovereign i mean sorry god is sovereign and i don't have free will or god is not sovereign and i do have free will so that might be two dichotomous views that we're trapped in. But I think the reason why it's a false dichotomy is because I don't know if God's sovereignty I don't is the logical contradiction of free will. So ah, okay. then then you're just making like because a logical contradiction really is the table is made out of wood. If 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 I make a proposition that says the table is both made out of wood and not made out of wood, so if I said something like God is both um, sovereign and not sovereign, that would be a contradiction. Or if I said something along the lines of God is loving and not loving, or if I said something like God is gracious and not gracious, but yeah, that, that would be, be that would be an example of a contradiction. But to say something like God is loving, gracious, and allows for sin. I don't know if each of those propositions are a negation of the other. They're okay. So you'd have to find out. You'd have to look for more evidence for one of them being exactly. a negation of the other, exactly. or maybe vice versa. One is um, propping yeah. up. The so other. you'd have to you'd have to essentially um, syllogistically, deductively, or inductively prove that loving is equal to allowing or to not allowing sin you'd have to prove that something loving would entail that there's no possibility of sin being in this world that's really cool i'm i'm just kind of happy that i was able to follow along on that because i that was my you just you just taught me philosophy really i I don't know i feel like i expect (laughs) you like (laughs) i know you would expect me i don't (laughs) i don't know all the definitions it's like it's a different it is a different way of thinking i guess 
But it, it took me a while. Okay. It wasn't until like I actually stopped studying that I actually digested and thought about the world and in these terms. Like while I was studying it, I didn't <laughs> I didn't make sense of it and like symbolic logic was one of the hardest things for me to to pass. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot. Okay, so going back to the topic of that though. What are we talking about? We're talking about like um, paradoxes that I think Christians wrestle with. Right. And then mm-hmm. I think therapeutically. So one thing, I, one, one part of doing like therapy and counseling that I enjoy is actually like um, targeting irrational beliefs. Because in my opinion, they correlate mm-hmm. so well with um, logical fallacies. And I, as I see it, I think false dichotomies correlate very well with dialectical thinking because we a lot of times get trapped into this all or nothing thinking so mm-hmm. if god is loving then he can't be these other attributes as well right and yeah. i and i want to bring this up because maybe we don't have to walk away from our beliefs just because we have this apparent contradiction that we seem to be faced with and maybe Something that was like opening, eye-opening for me was actually understanding how these all fit together and starting from the presupposition of, well, maybe these things are all true. Like how might they fit together and what kind of image of God did that present me with? And knowing that these, all these things were true, in my opinion, was actually like very, it was like a very beautiful um, display of love. Because yeah. you don't understand grace without, well, I don't want to say you don't, but my understanding of grace is highly tied to my understanding of sin and my imperfection. I would agree with that. I, I wouldn't really disagree with that understanding of grace because I don't think you can truly have um, one, that experience without having that other experience of uh, messing up. Uh, with whatever, even if it's not in a uh, religious context of like sin, people still mess up with relationships. Uh, people still feel the pain of, you know, going too far or not saying enough um, in whatever circumstance. So, experiencing grace is is for is tied with the other. Yeah, and I think it's like a it's a big image of love. Like that's one of the that is move that was moving to me like emotionally like really gripped me and made me feel deeply that sense of love is like knowing and like developing that idea of god that was actually extremely loving and something that I could really rest my security in and identity mm-hmm. and that was and i i think we don't the one big reason why i think you can't look at Christianity as just a real rule book is for one. If you don't, we love because he first loved us. We don't experience that or know that we basically miss out on what would be considered the morality aspect of it. All this. Are you saying if, if we don't experience that through God or if we don't experience that through our relationships on earth with, early caregivers experience that through god in essence but i think part of experiencing that through god is also experiencing that with others so what i do want to say is we may not experience that with early caregivers 
it doesn't mean it's hopeless because for one, you can experience it with God. But also I think if we take to heart the idea that um, believers are the embodiment of Christ and they're his hands and feet on earth to do his work, then one way to, I guess, help non-believers experience that is to show that to them. And we see this therapeutically as well. So with the psychoanalytic approach, um, in essence, the therapist allows the client to reattach, to project the negative affect that's projected onto the early caregiver. And then the therapist acts in a therapeutic way and responds therapeutically to allow the client to then um, re-experience a new attachment and then move that, have, use that attach, um, relationship with the therapist to have it with other people. Okay, I see what so you're saying. Okay. I think there's, there's this, that's why I want to talk about the hope behind this. It's, you're not, you're not, it's not determined, my view isn't deterministic. For, I guess, Freud mm-hmm. or Erickson, it might look a little more deterministic. If you have these early attachments, yeah. you're, kind of, you're kind of doomed unless something happens or you, you do a lot of work to fix it. But. Well, it can be very scary, too, if it's uh, your first time learning about attachment theory and maybe you don't have other experiences or other maybe more understanding with other psychological concepts of like, how people get hurt and become who they are. Um, one of the things that I learned, um, or at least I thought about, because when I first got introduced to this, it was in my undergrad years. And I was really fascinated by it. I was like, oh, attachment theories, never heard of it, really interested in it. But I also had all these questions like, well, at some point you have to move from like avoidant, anxious attachment to a secure attachment, or maybe like an anxious to an avoidant. Um, or you could just cycle down into a disorganized attachment too. Um, so I was like, there has to be like a spectrum of like moving through things based on your experiences in life, um, as you keep going through experiences in life. So I always had questions about that. And I think I can look at myself as an example and for other people to, to maybe see my own story as an example too. And is uh, I always thought I had a secure attachment because I have pretty good relationships with both my parents. They're very secure, safe people to be around with and talk to and express emotions and ideas and things like that. Yeah, I can attest um, to that. <laughs> you can, yeah. <laughs> um, but there is also, and maybe it's from other, maybe other experiences or maybe just my temperament too could be definitely maybe lean more towards like an anxious attachment uh, or maybe like an avoidant attachment too. Because whenever I would make mistakes, my whole concept of God was like, it was um, black or white or, you know, it was like, if I do this, I cannot be saved. There's, doesn't make sense. Or like, how do I keep doing this? And there's still grace. Um, It's like, how does that, how does that really work? Like, how do I keep accepting grace every day and know that it's always going to be there, but knowing that I'm not doing anything to change either. So for anybody who is at least familiar with maybe like uh, scripture or like theological understanding of beliefs about Judeo-Christian 
religions. Um, you could probably attest to that experience a little bit too. So I would say only recently within the past three years have I kind of come into a more secure attachment of an understanding of who God is and how we can have a God who, at least in scripture says, you know, hates sin, but also has a deep love that is extremely hard to comprehend that is there for everybody. They don't make sense together. In a sense, it's, it's, it sounds like paradox. And so, like I said, like only within the three years have I come to experience that more and refute the irrational beliefs that I've had about myself and salvation and grace and, and God, who God is to me, um, to replace it with that. So kind of like a um, cognitive reframing. Yeah, and there seems... And I think what I, one thing I love about the field that we're in, of course, there's a lot of things I might not agree with, but there's a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of good literature that supports and reflects, I think, things that are said in the Bible as well. And it's interesting to see how, I think for a long time for me, I had a lot of skepticism and doubt towards um, the veracity of the moral realism in the Bible and really understanding, really understanding the goodness of God, because to me, it felt like a transaction, like a, of rules for one thing. And it yeah. also, I didn't, I hadn't, I had no conception of why this was good. Like I could not see why this was good at all. <laughs> and that, that has to do with things to do with me and my own rebelliousness, I think. But also, but what I'm, what I'm trying to point to is it's interesting to see how good these things are empirically. And I think there's a lot of scriptures that point, and the correlations between um, some things that scripture talks about and cognitive behavioral therapy. Of course, I wouldn't reduce spiritual, that spiritual relationship to cognitive processes or um, neural links and neurological processes. However, it's interesting to see how, I think the way I see it is how our spiritual life and spiritual walk with God can actually tr transform us physically for one thing. So there's one, there's one thing that we, and by that I mean the brain. So there's one thing that we, we've okay. talked about this before, like neuroplasticity. What I find interesting is mm -hmm. what we think about can really shape physiologically and neurobiologically the the physical nature of our brain and one thing that i find interesting is there's a lot of references in scripture to for example thing in romans that says don't be transformed or don't be conformed to the to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and by testing you may discern what is the will of god and what is acceptable and perfect and i think it's crazy to think how confronting the rational beliefs and the lies and refocusing and reframing our beliefs to what is true can really help us um, correct some of these God images and some of these mm -hmm. uh, fallacious beliefs that we have towards God. And I think sometimes it seems 
in a way, I think it's mystical and it's supernatural and it's amazing. But in other way, in other ways, it's not so nebulous. Like there are things that I think we can do practically and we can practice out. If we, if we practice what we believe in a way that's oriented to who God is, I think that over time, like physically, that'll reshape your brain. And I think yeah. that ties in a lot with like the self and internal dialogue we have with ourselves, and the internal mm-hmm. dialogue that we have with regards to who we believe God to be. And right. I think sometimes it's, it's easy to get caught up in having for me anyway, like a disingenuous like relationship with who I believe God to be because it's so oriented on like the self. And I think with a lot of people, it's hard to in part understand like that goodness and love because the thoughts are very directed self inward towards like what I do wrong, which I'm not saying to, to overlook the things that we do wrong mm-hmm. but there's i don't know it's just fascinating like the research behind like cognitive refocus and reframing yeah i think there are a few things that you pointed out um kind of like our, our self-talk and self-image how our internal dialogue reflects um with god um, and I was wondering, I would maybe also add in there, I don't know what you think, um, but also like our external dialogue with people as well as like a reflect, because that's also like a, and we already kind of talked, mentioned that very briefly, like that's also like a, um, a reflection of, um, <laughs> all three, <laughs> our internal self, um, and also with God as well. And then God with them with other people externally. Um, what would you put out um, to certain people to kind of help? Because I, I, mean, I know that we have um, different skills and techniques that um, counselors can use to kind of help people reframe things cognitively or maybe to challenge um, irrational beliefs. Um, uh, that just seem to really dig deep into people and kind of create uh, that psychological distress that might bring someone to counseling for depression or anxiety, um, just to name like the two basics. Because um, I know we've talked about CBT, dialectical, and REBT. But question for you is, which one would you kind of pick out to kind of help someone understand how they can reframe certain things or challenge. One thing I found, I guess some different categories that I find interesting is for one, what is your identity? Who do you believe yourself to be? Is this an independent being or is this a relational being? If it's a relational being, what is that relationship? And what's at the forefront of your identity? So, for example, if you're depressed because you lost your job or if you're anxious because you're going to a new school and you're just worried about if if everyone's going to make fun of you, if you're going to fit in, what they're going to say and all these things, which are, I'm not minimizing it. It's 
it makes sense. I get it. It's complete. It's completely normal to feel that because you're in a new environment and perhaps in the past you've been hurt, right? Or, or you broke up in a relationship. You loved a girl. She was, or a boy. You loved this boy. He was awesome. He broke up with you. And then all of a sudden you feel like who you are is like gone, just completely ripped to shreds. Or your teacher, your teacher tells you this essay is terrible on the, on the board of calling you stupid. Like, and then your self-esteem is completely shot. Or if you're an athlete, like you're good at basketball and you injure yourself, all of a sudden you can't do sports. And, all the, and it makes sense that you'd, you're going to experience some sadness because there's this loss. But I think one thing that's interesting about identity is if, if it is as being a relational being and understanding with an understanding of God being a good father, if your identity is primarily as his son and being secure in that and being able to operate with that understanding and God image that God is loving even when I'm not perfect and having your worth tied into that as opposed to um, only in being an athlete or only in being an academic. When areas where you fall short in, in those fields happen, which is going to happen, you're going to fall short. We're not perfect. I, I feel like I can already predict that. Um, and unless you're, Yeah, yeah. We're going to fall short in our counseling exactly. careers at There's one that. point. And, and even in this podcast, I'm going to say something dumb that I'm going to look back <laughs> and I'm going to wonder why did I say this? Uh, the, actually, the podcast is a perfect example. Because yeah, it's only yeah. out of, for one thing, the grace of God to give me um, courage to do something like this, that I'm willing to put like those anxious thoughts or fears aside. And I say this because when your purpose and your focus is on him, who he is, his love for you, like building his kingdom, doing his work, glorifying him and enjoying him, these things seem to matter less and they, they're going to have less impact on your self-worth because your worth isn't tied to that. identity. And the same goes with shame. When we see religion as just a transaction, then it becomes a merit-based and performance-based. So if you're not upholding your end of that transaction, which like we're not, <laughs> I, I did not, I have not. <laughs> There is a sense in which I, I'm allotted this grace and love and I can operate from that instead of being immobilized or just self-absorbed with the bad things I've done. Sometimes I talk to people and it's like, I can just see the weight of their shame just smashing them and slamming them to the ground, feeling condemned and as though they're not worthy of love. So I think and a little quick thing, the difference. So one thing that's, that I find interesting with the literature is about guilt and shame anyway, is that it separates shame as you begin to identify with your sin. So it looks at, at the individual when they sin and identifies saying, hey, like I am my sin, I'm good for nothing. That is the totality of me. And this is where the, the dialectical thinking is great is because if you think about it, uh, another way to think about it is in terms of guilt, 
I did something wrong that I shouldn't be doing. Guilt tells me and convicts me like, hey, there's this action that I did that's wrong, but it, the action doesn't define who I am. So that's, that's, one, that's another reason why I think like working on the identity is so important because if your identity is just wrapped up in shame and identifying yourself as just being a sinner, for example, then it doesn't separate, like, I'm the son of God and I sin and make mistakes versus I'm just wallowing in my shame. And the focus is inward. Yeah. I wanted to, to go back to the shame and guilt real quick. Um, so the distinction then, it sounds like, so the dis- one, there's a difference between the two. Um, and for shame, it is relating more to whatever that behavior is. And kind of self-identifying with that, like, I'm an alcoholic, I guess, if alcohol is the behavior of choice and it's gone to an extreme of hurting your life or other people's lives or, you know, whatever that might look like. Um, So that would be shame. But guilt, in a sense, what you're saying is a little bit different in the sense of that guilt is kind of like an or orienting mechanism of like, hey, this is wrong. Like I'm I'm experiencing maybe a guilt um and thoughts of that this isn't a good idea or what I did was wrong. Um towards whoever, myself or other people and I need to do something to change this. Um which might lead to a healthy behavior or choice could lead to a bad one <laughs> i was thinking that I was like oh it could go back to something that's not good um so it sounds like there's like a, a good type of guilt i think yeah i guess is what and i think that's sometimes the downfall of i don't know how should i say this being too accepting it's 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 plain <laughs> We want to show grace, but I think it's a different conception with pointing out that there's certain undesirable behaviors and like allowing people and helping people to, to recognize that because with love, it's understanding that I think there are boundaries towards, and I think even being embodied creatures. And it's a very existentialist approach also. Like, you're always kind of expanding and contracting and seeing the limits to what it means to exist as a human being. Because to exist as an embodied creature is naturally going to have certain limitations. And I think, and all this to say, at a certain point, if I accept all your behaviors, some of them are going to harm you. So I think there's merit to say guilt operates in a way that allows us to identify undesirable bad behaviors that are sinful and mm-hmm. allows us to like say okay. like repent from them or turn from them or stop doing them. It doesn't all it doesn't right. all have to yeah. be sin based. I mean Right. But yeah. In essence. <laughs> 
It's tough. Yeah. Being and, and I think that's where the beauty of grace comes in. It's, 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 that's why I talked about understanding the, the love and imperfection thing. It's understanding that, hey, there's things that I need to work on because they're good, but operating from the idea of like, well, when I mess up, I'm still loved. And the reason why I'm receiving this discipline or correction, whatever, is out of love. I think it's important to, I think it's important that love and truth go hand in hand and they're commensurate with yeah. one another. Yeah. I just had this uh, image pop up in my head from the movie Beautiful Boy. Have you no. seen that? No. It's um, oh, I forgot the, it's from the guy from The Office. I just forgot his name. Which um, guy? The manager. Uh, Carell. Michael Scott. Steve Carell. Is it Steve yeah. Carell? Steve Carell. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, Steve Carell and, and Timothy Chalamet. Um, and it's about based on a true story and it's about the boy's um, story of addiction into uh, I think it's heroin. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, a point in the scene, spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen this, just check out now for like two minutes. Um, <laughs> there's a point in the movie that's really powerful and also very impactful and kind of highlights that idea of um dialectical thinking that this behavior and how it affects the family and him the boy is negative i mean it's just terrible there's nothing good there's nothing good that can really be drawn out of it and then the boundaries that are set in place by the father in that scene are really we would say are really healthy really firm boundaries but they're also really painful for both of them and we can touch on a few different things here but what you can see though is that even though it's painful and almost seems like well that's really uncaring unloving of this father to set these boundaries for his son at this moment and his greatest need um they're also not saying that the father doesn't love the boy anymore. It's simply actually referring more to that the father loves him so much that he's going to put these boundaries in place. He's not going to let him come home. He's not going to take him to the hospital. He's telling him, you're on your own. You know what to do. You have your accountability partner. Call him. I can't help you anymore, which is really good because with people who are in a relationship of some sort with someone who is going through an addiction such as that, setting those firm boundaries are really, really, really helpful. And you have to understand at some point that you cannot change that person, um, which takes away maybe some of that burden, that guilt, maybe even shame of being an uncaring father or, or whoever. Um, so I, that just popped up into my head as a very strong image based on what you're saying. It's like the father is not an uncaring person for setting these things that are painful for the boy. It actually shows him in a very loving manner. And the same thing for the boy too, we could say. It's like his behaviors are not helping him or, or anybody else. But at the same time, 
you can see that he is shame or ashamed. Well, that gets into a whole other side of addictions and things like that. But we can still say, like, he's not. This doesn't define him either. But it's it's easy to say that. It's much harder to work with that, too, and, and kind of helping people come out of addiction. So we just got on a topic of addiction. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, a, <laughs> whole other that's an awesome way to. Yeah, we should do still an addiction one. <laughs> we should do an addiction episode. Um, but no, I oh, think boy. that's like awesome. Like sometimes I think sin is very much like boundaries on how to live well. And sometimes, sometimes to care for someone involves not enabling them to pursue the negative behavior. And sometimes it takes setting boundaries like that. Sometimes it's more harmful, I'd argue even, to go on and encourage. At a certain point, it's going to look like encouraging certain behaviors. And you see this with OCD too. But I won't go too much into that. We're going into all the topics. Sometimes (laughs) it's helpful to not do that. And I think one thing that it makes me think of is this is exactly why I think free will and determinism aren't necessary contradictions to one another and i'll explain why this applies to boundaries because you need a certain level of determinism meaning this is the way things are and there's limitations to my freedom that actually proliferate my freedom and what i mean by this is when we live within the confines of i think how god designs and this is why it took me forever for some reason to understand the goodness but i feel, feel like now i have a little more light um, graciously given to me to ask, to understand this and ascertain this. That when we live within those confines and understand those boundaries, they allow us to and engender, I think, more love and ultimately more acceptance and more freedom to live because we're, we're living the way we were designed to and how we're meant to have relationships. So with like the kid and his father, it's, uh-huh. it, in one hand, it looks like Oh, the father's like limiting the kid's freedom and it's fun or whatever. I don't, I didn't watch the thing. But, but one, one way that might look like is like, oh, this guy doesn't yeah. want me to have fun. Like, I, I don't get to like do sure. all the drugs yeah. I want. I don't get to drink all I want. Like, on one hand, it might be framed like that. But I think if you look, if you look at it with the fullness of like how we're, spo- how we're meant to have relationships, I think there's a certain limit to that because it, it then allows us to enjoy things like responsibility, like caring for one another, understanding that my actions have consequences. Like, and I think that's, that's in part like understanding what love is like, is you really have to, in, for, one, for one thing, you have to be attuned to what the person is thinking and, and a feeling and attuned to what is good for them. You're, you're not just doing whatever you want. And I think, that design is is beautiful because then it allows us to have good things like that that conceptually I think aren't possible mm-hmm. if we if we just did whatever we wanted like that doesn't max I don't think that maximizes our happiness not that that's the point of freedom but the, <laughs> the point of freedom there, is there's happiness. a certain sense <laughs> in which if I want to love you properly I have to put constraints to it. oh or like a marriage 
Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought of when you said that. <laughs> like if I want to have a beautiful monogamous relationship with someone, I can't sleep around with like five other people because it's going to hurt like whoever I'm with, like your, your significant right. other. And, at, and yeah. on the one hand, you might look at it for those who do think, Hey, you're ruining my fun. But on the other hand, I think there's something beautifully designed about that because for one, I think we're designed for that kind of relationship. Also for another, it's going to develop a different level of intimacy that you share with a single person. Yeah. You lose out on that yeah. capacity if you choose this other lifestyle. Agreed. Yeah. And there's like a cause and effect as well. Uh, just looking at that plain and simply too. So to, I think we've talked about a lot of good things um, to kind of, well, <laughs> I thought, I thought it said oh, it no. stopped recording. I was like, oh my God. Like all that talking. Although there's so many times where I wish I could re-say some of the things I say, but we'll roll with it. No. Yeah, we'll, we'll roll with it. Okay. Oh, is that weird sound? Do you hear that? I guess so. <laughs> Caroline. Speaking of monogamous <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, where's that noise coming from? Well, you know what, dear listeners, thank you for participating. Uh, and listening to the cultured chameleon train today. Uh, we had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. I'll say me. I had a lot of fun talking about God attachment, attachment theory, and all the other topics we kind of touched on as well. Um, there's so many different interesting topics. I think we can all kind of like maybe take an episode for each one, like addictions is one, boundaries we can do a lot of stuff on just to kind of, give some ideas and understanding of what that looks like um, as it ties into maybe a third culture perspective, um, mental health perspective, or for both of us too, um, our Christian perspectives as well. So, Eugene, yeah. And to thoughts. tie this into a third culture perspective, I think <laughs> one thing that was big for me was understanding my identity and that allowed me to explore different cultures and like travel operating from a security of my, with my relationship with God and my image of who he was. And I encourage, I want to encourage listeners for one thing, if you have thoughts, please contact us. I think our email is the culture yeah. chameleon. The culture chameleon. Yeah. At gmail.com yep, or, or Instagram, Instagram. <clears throat> at the culture chameleon podcast. And let us know your thoughts. Maybe this doesn't relate to you. Maybe it does. If you disagree, agree, or you got any insights, we'd love to hear them. Um, but I do want to encourage listeners to have that kind of genuine relationship with God and to seek him and who he is and put your mind and refocus your mind on who you are in relationship to him, meaning um, your sonship and your, and if he's the king of the universe, also being heir to that and thinking about who your image of what your image of God is. Is this a loving father? Um, 
someone who's just, someone who's, who's hateful and vengeful, not good. And I encourage you to find more and like really know him more personally for yourself. And to understand that you can find security in that. And that it's not someone that you have to be avoiding of. Yeah, encourage encourage that of our listeners, especially those that go through transitions and are TCKs and have a bunch of maybe different theological backgrounds. I think ultimately yeah. for me anyway, there's been a lot of like rest and peace once I really understood mm-hmm. who God truly is and allowed him to reveal that to me through experience and through head knowledge as well. Yeah, we didn't really get into that in terms of different cultural theological beliefs but we'll do that for another time that might be really interesting to get into um i think that was really encouraging Eugene. thank you for that and i hope those who are listening will also take that into consideration but until next time have a great day